This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for the end of March, the beginning of April 2018. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too, David. On today's episode, we're looking at three topics. First of all, this past week, Dan was out on the West Coast for the Los Angeles Religion Education Conference, a massive get-together of Catholic thinkers and doers, and he brings us a report from that conference. Next, the New York Times has published some important and troubling research about long-term poverty discrepancies in America, particularly for African-American males. We're going to talk about it. And in our last segment of the show, we're going to look at the recent allegations that ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, has been targeting immigration activists for arrest and deportation. We also have special bonus segments for all of you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add bonus audio and extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can. Go to Francis FX Pod and become a monthly supporter of the show. We thank you very much. And before we get started, we also want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Francis FX Pod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. We also want to thank our sponsors, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. They help to make this show possible, so please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. Speaking of people emailing us, we've gotten a lot of comments lately, people who have been listening to the show and have fact-checked us on a couple of things. And we just want to say, first of all, thank you for those gentle corrections. They have been appreciated. But also to say that just the fact that you're listening and the fact that what we're saying matters to you means so much to us. And I just want to say, I am sure I speak for you, Dan, when I say that's just uh, it's a wonderful thing to get those notes. And thank you. And please keep them coming. That's true. Yeah. I should say, uh, just to follow up, some fact-checking for sure, but also some expression of feelings, including some critical ones at times, but constructive critical. And, and David and I have talked about this and we read all your comments and we really appreciate that. So please continue that and, and it will have an effect and uh, we do pay attention to it. Thanks. 
Well, Dan, part of what we're going to be talking about is going to factor into my question of how you've been, because how you've been in the past couple of weeks has been preparing for and then being at the L.A. conference. But around that massive event, what else has been going on? <laughs> Life. Yeah? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, lots of exciting things. It is, like you say, a, a busy time, and L.A. Congress is is probably the busiest of busy times. But just this morning, I voted. Uh, we're recording this earlier than usual because I have to get back on the road tomorrow after I teach here in Chicago. I teach a, a course and then have to catch a flight to Houston to give a lecture at a conference and then a board of trustees meeting. So it's just on the go. But it also happens to be a primary day uh, here in the state of Illinois. And there's some really important referenda on the ballot. There's also primary candidates that need to be voted for. And, and so that's important as well. But I was very heartened to see some referenda put forward, including calling for the governor to uh, ban bump stocks. There's some calling for the governor to secure at the executive level here at the state protections for health care, according to the Affordable Care Act for certain people. So uh, that, among among others, is uh, you know really heartening. And I hope that uh, those referenda pass. David, how have you been? Yeah, so I think that I've mentioned, and actually some people wrote in offering some free tax advice, and I appreciate that, but it, it's tax time still. So the last time that we recorded, I was doing stuff for the LLC that I run, and now I've just gotten done doing our personal taxes and getting them sent in. And so I'm a tired person because that's some heavy lifting, and I don't do math very well. And so making sure that every form is there and making sure that everything has been taken care of has been a little uh, has been a little crazy making, but I'm I'm okay. Some other exciting things are happening. I think that I've mentioned that there are books that are in process right now. I'm in conversation with another publisher about a project that I'm very excited about. It's a project I've been working on for a while, a biography of Walter Brueggemann, and so it looks like it might finally find a home. And oh, so that is exciting. Yeah, we're working on that, and then. Um, I have a good friend out in L.A., and he and I have been sort of shopping around a spec proposal for a new TV series on faith in Los Angeles. And so I've is there such a thing? There really is. And it's like Chicago. Los Angeles is an amazing and very complex ecosystem of old and new faith traditions. That's very true. Yeah. And so he comes from the Sikh tradition. He's my friend Rahul Deep Singh Gill. I come from the Catholic tradition, and we've had a lot of fun kind of approaching this in a very intersectional way. And it's it's been a lot of fun to work on. And I, I have no idea if it's going to go anywhere. But uh, I mean, this is just, it's been a fun side project to work on while I'm doing the 90,000 other things that I do. I was going to say David Dalt, Renaissance man. <laughs> he writes his novels. He writes his nonfiction. He produces radio. He produces video. He writes uh, uh, spec scripts. What can't he do? Math. I, I can't do math. That's exact, <laughs> I'm with you there. Exactly right. <laughs> I always tell people, too. I mean, at least in my family, it seems like uh, gifts have been distributed among the various children. My brother, uh, who's two years younger than me, is, is a high school math teacher and has a degree in math and a degree in education and teaches occasionally at a community college. And he knows all that math stuff. And the, the hardest part of you know graduate work for me, hands down, was the preparation for the GREs, to yeah. <laughs> memorizing math equations that I still don't understand and that I probably promptly forgot. So yeah, yeah. Uh, apart from uh, finding the area of a of a circle, you know, pi r squared. That's the only thing that has been useful to me in life from that series of equations, and and that's only because if you don't know how that works 
pizza sizes can be very misleading. So. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and the only thing that sticks with me mathematically, thanks to my my high school math teacher, is the quadratic formula. So to this day, I know minus b plus minus square root of b squared minus 4ac over 2a. I have no idea how to use it, Yeah, but I know the formula. <laughs> Well, let's turn to happier things. Dan, you've recently been on the West Coast in Los Angeles at the L.A. Congress of Religious Education. And I, I, I've got the name wrong at the top of the show. So why don't you first of all tell us what's the proper name of this event? Yeah, so it's called the Los Angeles Religious Education Congress. And uh, it is a conference and Congress and conference sound similar. And so you're not alone. That happens a lot. So this is really a unique event worldwide. It's, it's pretty extraordinary, and it has humble beginnings going back now more than 30 years to a, a regional diocesan event. And there are many of these around the country today that provided an annual sort of uh, weekend gathering where speakers, oftentimes local speakers, uh, theologians from Catholic universities, pastoral leaders, and, and so forth, would come together and provide workshops kind of ongoing formation for lay catechists and, and pastors and, and people in ministry. And it has really blossomed. It has really kind of grown over the years. This year, there were more than 40,000 people who came. And so uh, it's, it's a little bit of a misleading number because there are two events that are deeply connected but treated somewhat distinctly. On Thursday, they have what's called Youth Day. And on that day, you have 15 thousand high school students. 15,000. It is as crazy as it sounds. I'll say more about that in a minute because this year was my first experience of that extravaganza. Okay. Yeah. But then fr you have Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, a three-day event, uh, and you have about anywhere from twenty-five to 30,000 adults. And so here you have uh, men and women religious. You have lay men and women. You have uh, Catholic school teachers. You have parish employees. You have pastors and associate pastors and ministers of all kind. And you have ordinary Christians who maybe live in the Los Angeles area or make the pilgrimage out there because they bring in all of the kind of Catholic and, and sometimes more broadly Christian speakers, authors. We talk about it as kind of like a Catholic celebrity Disneyland. So if there is a, an author that you, you read, for instance, Ron Rollheiser or James Martin or uh, Gregory Boyle or uh, R Bishop Robert Barron, all of those people and more are there. You have theologians like Richard Gallardi and uh, Brian Massengale. You have uh, other theologians like Dan Haran and uh, say, Vanessa yeah. White and Richard Fragamini and Barbara Reed and Donald Sr. and Carol Dempsey and also all the scripture scholars, all the theologians, all the king's horses and all the king's men. <laughs> and it's really quite extraordinary. So People go there because it's an opportunity in one shot in one weekend to hear people that and, and to meet people that you wouldn't otherwise get. You know, a lot of dioceses, a lot of parishes can't afford, don't have the resources or don't have maybe the numbers of people when a lot of these speakers, authors, educators are in very high demand to to bring in figures like this. So um, it, it really is is uh, quite amazing. So you, you mentioned the youth event. And so first of all, my question is, 
do the youth just come from the L.A. County area, or are they coming from all over the country? A little bit of both, mostly from California. Okay. So it's, it is a Thursday, which means, you know, if they're Catholic school students, and, and they're quite a few, my understanding is that they get the day off, that this is in lieu of, you know, it's, it's kind of an in-service sort of day. But no, there are quite a few youth groups that make the trip. So I had the great privilege two years ago to give uh, an endowed lecture at the University of Utah, their Catholic campus ministry. And it's staffed by the Dominican friars and by a number of awesome uh, lay people. And it turns out that they're one of the groups that made the trip from Salt Lake City to Los Angeles, California. They road tripped, you know, got a bus with 40 teenagers. And I was really honored to see them. They, they were one of the groups that came to one of my workshops on Thursday. So they won the award that morning for the group that had traveled the farthest. Everybody else that morning happened to be from California. I'm going to say I've got America's Ventura Highway going through my head right now, <laughs> that kind of road trip thing. Like, so a Catholic road trip for certain, for certain Catholic high schoolers. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So this event is there, and is it mainly to be a religious event? Is it meant to be a commercial event? Is it an intersection of the two? Where do faith and commerce kind of meet, and what's the border between them at this L.A. wreck? Yeah, so it's a little bit of all that. So let me say there are really kind of three prongs to, to Congress. The, the, the primary focus is the ongoing formation, the education, the personal kind of faith development and, and spirituality education and, and that sort of thing. And so the workshops are the core. I mean, that is what it's all about. And there's a very strong liturgical dimension. So from the opening, it's almost like the Olympics. There's an opening kind of liturgy or prayer service and welcoming, and that takes place within the context of prayer. There are daily liturgies, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they're on the youth day as well. The whole weekend concludes with the closing liturgy where the Archbishop of Los Angeles and all the auxiliary bishops and so forth can celebrate over that particular liturgy. And it's just, I'll say, I, I can say more about that, but I've always find that to be a moving experience. And, and I was actually pretty disappointed that because of my teaching schedule, I couldn't stay this year for it. But it, it is something that's quite extraordinary because it takes place in an arena of 8,000 people. So it's almost like going to a papal mass. I mean, it's just so moving. And then the third kind of element, you've got, you've got the workshops, you've got the liturgies. The third thing that happens is the exhibit hall. And this is probably what you're getting at in terms of the commerce side of things. Every major Catholic publisher, every major uh, music a production company, so GIA and OCP and WLP, a lot of universities and graduate schools, including my own employer, the Catholic Theological Union, including a school on whose board I serve, the Franciscan School of Theology in California, the, the University of San Diego, Boston College, you know, I, I'm leaving a lot out there, uh, Loyola Marymount University and so forth. They all exhibit there. So people who have gone to professional society gatherings and conferences are familiar with the exhibit hall where it's just like a mall of, of excitement and goodness. You see everything here, uh, including media operations like Sirius XM's Catholic Channel, you know, does live broadcast from there and EWTN Radio does live broadcast from there. And in other years, groups like Franciscan Media would do video interviews with different speakers and, and authors at America Media had been present for many, many years. And so, yeah, there is a commercial site. You can go and, and there are book signings. There are uh, heavy discounts on CDs and books and religious goods and articles. That's the other thing. You have these distributors of Paschal candles and vestments and rosaries and crosses and 
everything and anything you can think of, you've got it there. Okay, so I've got a couple questions. One, first of all, I'm assuming that you mentioned Franciscan Media. So Franciscan Media is a sponsor of Francis Effect. So is Liturgical Press. They were both there. I'm assuming they were both there. Did you have a chance to kind of rub shoulders with them and be like, hey, I'm Dan Haran from the Francis Effect? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know if this is a humble brag, but they already knew who I was, so I didn't, I didn't have to introduce myself in that I way. I figured they did. I figured but, they did. Um, but I did see and, uh, and was able to connect, so shout out to Hans and Barry and Peter uh, over at Liturgical Press and to uh, Kelly over at Franciscan Media. Uh, Franciscan Media didn't have a booth this year. They've been trying some new things, so but they were present and in force, and they had a partnership with Paulus uh, Press Another great Catholic publisher, uh, not yet sponsor of this program, hint, hint. Not yet. <laughs> but Paulus Press uh, provided uh, a res- uh, kind of an area where they sold books for Franciscan media for the authors that were there. So they carried some of my books and they carried Harper Collins's books. So a lot of Jim Martin's books, too. And so the, the second question is, did you have a chance, I, I think from social media, I know the answer to this question, but I'd love to hear more about it. Did you have a chance to meet some listeners or some people that are fans of the show? Yeah, yeah, quite a few. And so sh- I, I wish I had a running list. I've met so many people and that's that's the blessing. And it's not quite a curse, but one of the challenges is oftentimes, you know, you'll meet a lot of people in quick succession. So, yes. you know, I, the two workshops that I gave to the General Congress, they were both in rooms about, of about a thousand people. And then I had the great, and it's, it's a humbling a privilege and, and honor and, and ministry to preside and preach at one of the liturgies. Two years ago, it was in the arena, so it was a mass of 8,000. And I told people, I said, there's something, there's just nothing to describe the experience of worshiping in that kind of space. But then there's another <laughs> level of kind of surreality of presiding and preaching in, in a liturgy of 8,000 people. But So this year, they, they gave me a break. There were only 2,500 people at this particular liturgy in, an, in a hotel ballroom. Wow. But what happens is, you know, think about greeting people after mass at a, at a normal parish. You have a couple hundred people. You know, you're, you're just meeting hundreds and hundreds of people. So I, I don't have everybody's name off the top of my head, and I apologize for that. But there were many people who talked about the podcast. And so I thank you, all of you who uh, mentioned the podcast, who, uh, who, who thanked us for it. Quite a few people have said that they would love it to be a weekly program. Um, and so, uh, hint, hint, the more, <laughs> the more people can help support, you know, the podcast, that's, that's what we're looking for in terms of uh, the costs of production. And, um, you know, that's what that Patreon opportunity is really for. And so those who are already sponsors, we're grateful. But even if the, for those people who, who aren't able to sponsor or, or to assist in that way, we are so grateful for your uh, listenership and, and for your engagement. And I, for your prayer. And for your prayer, yeah. yeah. Keep it coming. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Okay, so so you had a chance to be there in multiple roles, if I'm hearing this correctly. You were there as a participant to, to just have the whole of it wash over you. The merchandise room, all of the... <laughs> merchandise all, room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when Jesus came through and started pushing the tables over. <laughs> so you've turned but, my convention center into a house of thieves. But you were, you were, all, you were also <laughs> there as an author. And you were there as a priest and religious celebrant, and you were there as as a representative and member of your religious order. Yeah, that's a lot of intersections to carry into one place. And so now I want to ask, how do you navigate those kind of intersections? How do you how do you balance and juggle those multiple identities in that space? 
Well, there, you know, that's, that's a great question. There's only so much energy that one has, and there's only so much time in, in a day. And so one of the things that I found, this is now my fourth or fifth year being invited to come and be a part of this, is that I, I don't go to any of the other workshops. And so I, I would love to, and, and a lot of the workshops are led by or presented by friends of mine. So that's another element, actually, that I'm there, is, is that it's, it's like our academic conferences, like the American Academy of Religion or the Catholic, Catholic Theological Society of America. You know, there's the professional thing, the work that you have to do there, but in this case, the ministry that we uh, offer. But there's also the opportunity to connect with friends that I only see a couple times a year, for instance, here. So, you know, I have lots of friends who are composers, lots of friends who have artists, lots of friends who are authors. And, and to be able to spend some time going out to dinner, grabbing some coffee, bumping into people and chatting. Uh, there are a number of receptions, oftentimes by invitation only, where it's a space where people who might otherwise be mobbed throughout the day by 30,000 Catholic groupies, uh, which is not an insult. It's, it's a really, it's a compliment about the enthusiasm and the energy there. There are these times, these spaces where we can connect with one another and, and just catch up and see how things are going. And so that's something I really look forward to every year in addition to the whole experience. So negotiating those things is, is pretty straightforward. I mean, there is, there is always a, a very humbling and startling experience. You know, I'm not the biggest name there, I'm, but I also recognize that I'm not the smallest. And being kind of a, a middle-level uh, figure at, at L.A. Congress can be overwhelming at times because when you are out in the exhibit hall, or as you call it, what is it, the commercial floor or something? The like, swag room. The swag room. You know, people are constantly stopping you. But that's part of the ministry of presence. That's part of what it means to be there. And since I also have responsibilities to a number of different uh, organizations that are present there, um, not only do I represent my religious community and my habit and in my association and in my ministry, but as a member of the Board of Regents at the Franciscan School of Theology, I try to be present to those alums and to the staff there and the people working in the booth. As a faculty member at CTU, I, I try to be present and, and work there in that way. As an author uh, for a number of publishers that are present, I, I try to be present as well in those settings and, and to talk with people and to connect. And so, you know, it really is great, though I am more extroverted at times and introverted, it's still uh, an exhausting, uh, but a wonderfully exhausting experience. Well, and so as we're wrapping this up, what are some takeaways from the Congress, first of all, some things that you're specifically taking away from it from this year? And then as we look towards next year, do you think that there would be a time and a place for us to go? Because I, I recognize already you've got a multiple number of things there, but I'm, I'm going to pitch this to you. Do you think that there'd be a place for the Francis effect to be there at some point? Oh, in of some course. Limited, okay, so that's good. Yeah, I think, I think you know, the Francis effect, yeah, it's, it's made for us in some ways. Although <laughs> I, I'm happy to be a part of it, but I, I have to give a shout out apology to uh, Father Dave Dwyer and to Brett, the, the producer on Busted Halo Radio on Sirius XM, <laughs> because uh, unfortunately, because of my workshop schedule, and because of their timing, they broadcast live from the convention, from the, from the Congress, to a predominantly East Coast thing. So they're three hours off. This year, I wasn't able to join them on the air at any point, just conflicted every day. And so Brett at one point stopped me when I was talking to one of my publishers. And he's like, Father Dan, is there any way we can get you on? And I said, I'm going to try. And, and on the last day that I was there and had a workshop, I was on the top floor of the convention center in this huge ballroom. And my workshop went from one to two thirty, and they went off the air at three. Oh! And so you know, and I and I told them, I said I will try to get down, 
but you know, I need, I'm not going to kind of ditch the people who want to chat with me afterwards. And so we chatted and I got down with like five minutes left and, and, you know, they were on a commercial break and, and we chatted for a moment. I said, it's just not going to work this time. And, and that was fine. But uh, yeah, ordinarily, my point is that those kinds of opportunities are wonderful, you know, to, to connect, to do these kind of media uh, things. And, and I think the Francis effect would, would, be, would fit well there. If I could just say one, one more thing, too, because uh, we've been talking a lot and I'm, gl- I'm grateful for it because I, I want to plug L.A. Congress. But I also want people, some people may be listening. And if they're Googling L.A. Congress and this sort of thing, they might come across some of the kind of haters and the trolls out there. And one of the curious and sad things about L.A. Congress is that you have this location of 40,000 plus faithful, excited, energized Catholics who are learning about their faith, who are going deeper into the tradition, who are ministers and are, are getting resources for their work and ministry. And nevertheless, this event, because it's so massive and brings the number of kind of uh, big name speakers that it does, attracts a lot of protesters. And it's, it, what's interesting about it is it's the whole range of protests. And so on the one hand, there are the Westboro Baptist crowded people. The Catholics are going to go to hell because they're the wrong kind of Christians. The Catholics are going to go to hell. The Pope is deceiving you. Mm. Uh, your church is a lie. Priests are all pedophiles, all this kind of stuff. I mean, really, and, and that what I'm saying is what we can say on the podcast air. I mean, the stuff with the, and they're there with a bullhorn and with these big signs and they're there every year, and it's it's very, very disheartening, and it's very upsetting. The thing that is really frustrating t- to me is that arriving to the arena on Thursday morning for the Youth Day, you had these thousands and thousands, these busloads of teenagers lining up to enter into this event, and they're being berated by these protesters saying horrific things that I, I will not repeat on, on the air. But I'm just thinking of these kids, you know, they're 14, 15, 16 years old, and they're excited about their faith, and they're listening to this hate and this vitriol. It's terrible. So on the one hand, you have that crowd. You have protesters like, you may be familiar with this group, something about property and faith and something, I don't know, it's some some kind of interesting, wacky group that is is in the in the kind of camp of a church militant and the, and the rest. Um, and some of those figures are there as well. And they're out there protesting, sometimes peacefully. They're praying the rosary for the lost souls of the 40,000 people who are listening to these quote-unquote heretic speakers like Haran and Boyle and these kinds of things. But then you also have on the other extreme people who are protesting not because they see L.A. Congress and the Catholic Church as too progressive or too forward-thinking or this sort of thing, but because they're not forward enough. And so you have the kind of women's ordination group and you have people protesting on this side. And so it's it's a really interesting collection of protests. I just want to say that there are people out there on blogs and trolls on social media who make it uh, make this their kind of primary target every year to protest, to kind of say that it's bad and it's it's all these negative things. And I just want to say that it's not. That that is um, that's very misleading. It's deeply untrue. I, I have always found it to be an incredibly prayerful and faith-filled experience, a place where people have a great sense of optimism and enthusiasm for their faith, for worship and the rest. And so just a shout out and, and a note of gratitude to the Los Angeles Religious Education Congress staff, particularly the Office of Religious Education in L.A. These folks work so hard and do such a great job, and it is a service to the world and to the church. And if anyone has the opportunity uh, to go, 
absolutely do it. Well, and thank you for giving us kind of an overview of what went on there. And I'm looking forward, I hope, to joining you there next year. And with that, let's take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dull. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We're switching gears now to take a look at a very troubling, on the one hand, uh, yet on the other hand, I would suggest not too surprising, study that was published in the New York Times on March 19th, the heading of which says, Extensive Data Shows Punishing Reach of Racism for Black Boys. The gist, well, let me ask you, David. David, can you give us a kind of a summary? What, what is the findings here? Well, this first came to my attention, as it did for many of folks that may be listening, through social media over the past week. But it was, a, it was highlighted in an article from the New York Times, and we'll link to the article in the show notes. It's a longitudinal study that was conducted by Stanford, Harvard, and the Census Bureau. And it, it looks at what we call income inequality. And that's basically the net effects over time of the disparities of income on things like quality of life, length of life, health outcomes, those kinds of things. And the disturbing thing that they found is that even when you have African-American males who are born into affluence, and so just to give an example, if you have a street and on one side of the street in one home, you have an upper middle class white family with a young son. On the other side of the street, you have an upper middle class African-American family with a young son. They're the same age and you are controlling for most of the other factors like education and everything else. The likelihood, according to the study, is that black boys, and I'm quoting now, black boys, even rich black boys, can seemingly never assume that they can get out of poverty successfully. That there's more of a chance that they will not be affluent in their adulthood, that instead they will fall back into poverty. And there's a variety of factors that go into that, and we can we can dig into that. But as a person who grew up myself in distressed economic means, and uh, you know we don't have to go too much into that, but but basically I was educated in a, in an upper middle class way, but I was raised in a lower middle to lower class level of income household, so kind of a, a food stamp situation a lot of times. One of the things that I've heard is that in order to get out of poverty, you have to have 20 years of everything going exactly right. And in my own experience in my own life, that's played out. I mean, even to this day, there are things that show up that bring me great anxiety because, oh, if we, you know, with my family or whatever, if we mess up this one thing, there's a chance that we're going to slip back into that and it terrifies me. And I'm educated, relatively healthy, white male with a PhD. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I cannot imagine what a person of color or a person who is not male has to endure or an immigrant has to endure to try and get themselves into a place where they feel 
feel security economically. And so this study and this report really spoke to me on a number of levels. It spoke to me both on a Catholic level, which we can dig into, but also just the empathy that I had for this. Like I recognizing my own struggle as a small sliver of the struggle that I'm reading about here, it was it was tremendously powerful for me. Well, and I think one of the things your story illustrates is the kind of profundity of uh, in the starkness of this study. That again, I, as I said in the intro here, that I don't find it at all surprising. I mean, there's anecdotal evidence to support this, but this just provides the the quantitative data to back that up. And what it shows, as the the authors of the study and the reporters make clear, is that. Of all the factors, being a black male is the most disadvantageous. And what that shows to us, I think, is the systemic racism that exists in this context. That you can be you could be a poor woman, you could be a poor LGBT white person, you could be, in this case even, one of the findings showed that the disparity uh, over the long term between uh, white women and black women is actually not that different. But the disparity between white men, regardless of their starting point, as you rightly pointed out, your economic starting point as a child and as a young man was was notably lower than uh, a lot of others. And yet you were able, and what the study would suggest is in part because of your racial identity, your social location, you know, to move beyond that or to move to another place. Let, yeah. let, me, let me speak to that. So two things. First of all, one of the things that's important about identifying African-American young men is that what the study found is that that's the key factor, not just in their own success, but in this in the overall economic success of their communities. That's right. That's right. And so that's that's why that's why this is such an important finding is that and your note about the the women that are also tracked, they're not being the disparity. The the importance of African American men to this equation can't be overstated. So as let's just talk about my situation. So as a a white male cis-presenting, hetero-presenting, all the factors that our society kind of likes to see in a person. So all those things worked in my favor, but also I had access because of where I was living to scholarships, and I had access to education because of those scholarships. So I didn't go through the public system. I was raised in the private system in private education, but I was always there as the scholarship kid. But because of that, I graduated with a network and I graduated with contacts and I had access that even though I may have been in poverty, I knew that I could call people. Those are all aspects of this. So it's not just the individual aspect. It's the social aspect that is so important here. And one of the things that kind of stands out is uh, a quotation that says that they were trying to look at, you know, a comparative neighborhood where you can find both African-American boys and Caucasian boys who are coming from the neighborhood and are having success. And the problem is, is what they say in the study is that neighborhoods like that don't exist. Yeah. They said that this is, these trends reflect 99% of the neighborhoods in this country. Yeah. And, and if I can just pick up on that, you, you bring up a good point too, not only the contacts and the social network, not to be confused with the social network, Facebook, but the social network in which you found yourself and in which you were raised, though you may have gone to private schools on scholarship, class is not the determining factor, uh, as the study makes clear. Right. Class is something that could be hidden. I mean, you go to a private school where you have to wear uniforms. Well, nobody knows that you have one set of uniforms necessarily, and everybody else might have multiple ones, for instance. Whereas race is something because of the way that race has been laden with certain values and certain uh, privileges and disadvantages in our 
society and in, in this racist society, this anti-black racist society, you know, there are certain things you cannot run from, you cannot hide from. So we see, for instance, what happens with Professor, you know, Skip Gates in, in at Harvard when he in that famous uh, instance where he was. So this is the am I remembering correctly. This is the story where he's trying to get into his own house. He forgets yes. his keys and he and he's stopped by the police and he says, this is my house. And he still is accosted and he ends up getting, I think, handcuffed or arrested, if yeah. I remember because he's uh, basically because he's black trying to break into his own house and gets gets upset about the fact that he, a white police officer comes and is, you know, giving him a hard time about this. We see this as well in the in the testimonies of uh, in the witness of people like Senator Cory Booker, former mayor of the city of Newark, who talks about what it's like to be pulled over for no apparent reason just because he's an African-American male and he happens to be a United States senator that, that his race, you can't you can't hide from that. And, and the converse is true, too. So the reality of white privilege and white supremacy in our society means that, you know, we can't hide from our whiteness either, um, which I think our society encourages white people to imagine that they have no race, that this is the normative value and that Latinx people and Native Americans and African-Americans are somehow aberrant or somehow different from the norm. And that's a social construction that's incredibly destructive, as we see in this case. The other thing I'll, I'll point out, too, is that I think it was one point that the authors note is the kind of continual precarity, and I illustrated this with, you know, Professor Gates and, and with Senator Booker as two examples. But, you know, you could be an affluent CEO, you could be, a, you know, a young man in, in a relatively affluent neighborhood in one of these rare instances, like you said, it's not, not all that common. And, and you're always one arrest or one gunshot from a police officer or, or the like, away from everything falling apart, and it's tied to your your race in this case. And let me say, when I keep bringing up my own story, I don't think that this is about me. I, I'm trying to use my own experience as a way of, of leveraging myself into understanding just the enormity of this situation. And some of the things that the, the article points out, there are, there are things that can be done to help to mitigate these situations. And one of the things in particular is mentoring and the notion that you have, and, and it says that, you know, more so for young males than for young females, having someone who is older, who's not from your family, but who is from your same racial background, who has success and who comes alongside you and who can mentor you, that can make a tremendous difference. And that's true across the racial spectrum. It's not just African-Americans that benefit from that. Anyone benefits from that. But in particular, this is one way that, and this can pivot us into the question of kind of what is the Catholic approach to this and what can we do? If we think about parishes, if we think about the way that parishes can begin to leverage this in their own communities, if there is a strong contingent of African-American males in a parish, like in my parish at St. Thomas the Apostle, one of the things that can happen is if they can be if they can be intentional about moving into mentoring moments with these young men, either at the parish school or with other opportunities, that could make a tremendous impact on their community. And that's just a couple hours a week. Yeah, I think that's one side of it. Two things that come to mind. One is, as, as the study reiterates, like a well-known fact, one of the issues is the lack, like you said, of, of male mentors, uh, particularly black males for, for black boys growing up in this case. But But let's 
you know, that, that sheds light on why aren't there many black adult males around? And the answer is, you know, the, what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow, which is mass incarceration in the United States. And so here's another element of, uh, of a structural injustice that's tied to systemic racism in the U.S. And so that should call our attention to it's, it's not this kind of Fox News diluted kind of claim that somehow African-American men are delinquent or something. It's that they're being arrested oftentimes for things and in, in giving har- given harsher sentences than white males for similar infractions and the rest. The other thing I would say is that not only is there, you know, does, does, does the study from the, the Catholic perspective call for communities of uh, formation and mentorship uh, on the part of uh, persons of color, but I think those who identify as white as you have so far in our conversation, this is yet again another opportunity for us to look in at ourselves. Actually, it is is somewhat about you, you know, and about me Mm -hmm. and about listeners like us because, you know, we're part of the system and we, as you say, benefit, you know, wittingly or otherwise from a system that disadvantages in a, in a systemic way a population that, it, I mean, it's incontrovertible at this point. It, it, it's just, there's no, there's no question. So, you know, yes, there, there are proactive things that can be done. And, I, and I, I think you're right about that, that, you know, what can we do kind of programmatically at the parish level, at the diocesan level, as, as a faith community to help facilitate mentorship and a community of support and so forth. But I also think on the individual and collective and familial level, we, we need to not shy away from the realities of white supremacy and white privilege that exists in our society. Well, and that brings us back to some specifically Catholic points. So one thing that you have talked about a lot on this program, Dan, in various episodes, is the notion of the common good, the notion that we as Catholics, by our social teaching and by our theological, just the very nature of how we think about the Mass, the very nature of how we think about corporate worship, it's not an individual rugged thing. It is instead, we all get there. We're all in this together. And when we start thinking about the people in our community who are excluded by our community, we have a responsibility as Catholics, not just for our own good, but for their good as well, because that is the common good. And so as Catholics, we have a responsibility, as white Catholics, we have a responsibility to speak out about this and to use our privilege in constructive ways. And one of the ways that we're doing that right now is we have a podcast <laughs> when we're trying to talk about these issues. But there are also things that can be done on the on the level of just making sure that these conversations happen in all white spaces. Let me Let me unpack what I just said. If you find yourself, as I sometimes do, in an all-white space, and you find yourself in a conversation, as sometimes happens, where you begin othering groups of people, to be an advocate to speak up in those spaces, and it's going to be uncomfortable, but to be willing to speak up in those spaces and to advocate for the least of these among us in that room, and the least of these among us in the room would be the non-white, the non-privileged, well, as a Catholic, you have a responsibility. That's what God put you there for to speak for the creation and to speak for the common good. Yeah, I'm reminded of something along those lines that, you know, the great Catholic ethicist, Father Brian Massengale, Fordham University, gave a lecture here at CTU a couple weeks ago. And he's somebody I've mentioned before on the podcast whose work I, I tremendously respect. He's a wonderful person, too, as an aside. But in the Q&A of that lecture, he, you know, recounted a conversation he had with one of his students. I think it was at Fordham. It might have been he previously taught at Marquette University before Fordham. But in any event, an undergrad student. 
And, you know, the, the issue was, you know, what can I do as a, as a young white woman with regard to racism and stuff, you know, uh, and, and addressing this injustice? And, and you know, Massengale said, well, what are you doing now? And she's like, well, what can I do to advocate this sort of thing? And he said, well, how about with your family? <laughs> How about at Thanksgiving or these all-white contexts that you're talking about, David, where it's oftentimes those settings, as Madison Gale reminds us, that, you know, people who identify as white are more silent when it's, it's an all-white group. And, well, that's my uncle or, well, that's just my dad or that's, you know, my mom has had, you know, a, a glass of wine or something. And people say things and, and slip and people uh, who are otherwise well-intentioned and may even be aware of the nature of structural injustice in society, racism and privilege and that, that twofold dynamic are silent because, well, you know, and then yada, yada, yada. There are these excuses that are made in these contexts. And I think the challenge is, as you rightly note, not to be silent. You know, I'm reminded constantly of the Confidior, the, the prayer we, we, we pray together at the Celebration of the Eucharist in the Penitential Act, that, we, you know, we have to, you know, acknowledge what we have done, but also what we have failed to do in the failure to do something in those settings, as difficult as it is, and I speak from experience of, of the challenge of that, is, is a sin. It's what we, you know, it's, it's part of the sin of, of structural racism. Well, and it, you've just put me in mind of the other show that I run, Things Not Seen. I was booking a guest a couple of weeks ago and inviting this male guest to come on the show. And one of the things that he said, he said, I'd love to come on the show, but I also just want to challenge you and say, I'm concerned. Are you going to have a woman of color on the show anytime soon? And thankfully, I was able to say, yes, actually, in our in our in the role of things, we actually have an edit coming up that the. A woman of color is going to run next week, uh, Timon Davis from Loyola University. But the fact that he had the presence of mind to ask that question and to make sure that when he was getting this privilege of being asked to be on the show, he used it as a time to advocate for someone from a different gender and from a from a different race. That that was a profound moment for me. And I'm thinking now of, of when I get invited to go and speak and things like that. That's an opportunity for me to ask that same question. I love the opportunity. Thank you for asking me. I'd also like to encourage you to consider instead someone of color, someone who's female. I, I think that's that's going to become part of my shtick from now on. Yeah, and it's something we you know we mentioned on air here on air as if we're broadcasting live. We're worldwide, baby. <laughs> you know, as we mentioned on this show, it's probably a more apt way to put it. Something, something that, you know, from the very beginning we talked about, um, you know, does the world need another podcast with two, you know, white guys, talking, talk, you know, white guy explaining uh, things? And the answer is really no. But can we, as, as people who command a certain uh, attention and, and people are interested in, in at least sometimes some of the stuff we have to talk about, can we utilize that as an opportunity to bring other people on? And so so we have tried that and we can get better at that and, and we're, we're growing and working on it too. This just so happens to be a, uh, an episode where it's just two white guys talking for three segments, but stay tuned. And, and again, we welcome... Uh, the feedback, you know, give us suggestions and recommendations. We do listen to them and, and we appreciate it. Well, and with that, we'll link to the 
New York Times article in the show notes, and there's a link there as well to the study itself. This is such an important issue. It needs to be talked about more. And this is certainly not the last time that we'll talk about these issues, but we encourage our fellow podcasters out there and our listeners to bring these issues up, particularly in spaces of comfort and spaces of safety where you're with your tribe, if you will. Use those opportunities to begin to advocate for the least of these among us. Uh, We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Thank you so much for being with us. Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan, and each couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. The American Civil Liberties Union has been noting ICE, the the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, the federal agency that oversees kind of immigration and particularly undocumented persons. They have begun targeting and going after those who are immigration. NPR has published an entire list of 20 people who they say have been possibly targeted by this. And so it's a matter of concern for us on a number of levels. We've spoken about immigration on this program before in previous episodes, but we also have talked about the notion of subsidiarity, the notion of use of state power economically and socially at its proper level and where people who are being affected by a situation have the right to speak and advocate for themselves at the level of that situation. If these allegations are in fact true, we have the state overstepping its power and using its state power to create a chilling effect on proper democratic discussion about these immigration issues. These are not cut and dried issues. They're not black and white issues. They're issues of great contention and issues of great ethical entanglement. And so to simply say we've got one simple answer and all these other voices that are trying to speak on the other side of it just need to be silenced or to be taken away, that's not a democratic response. And that's a response that should concern everyone, not simply those who are being directly affected by it. This is the kind of stuff that you see in Vladimir Putin's Russia. Mm. This is the kind of stuff that you see in Venezuela. This is the kind of stuff that we used to think we were better than, that we were above here in the United States of America, a place that lauds its Bill of Rights, its uh, focus on civil liberties and the rest. And it's drawn the critique of the United Nations Office of Human Rights. I mean, it's interesting that the U.N. is is saying to the United States that the U.S. government is violating basic human rights in this regard. And recently, as one uh, article reports, uh, the United Nations Office of Human Rights issued a statement to the U.S. government 
ordering it to guarantee that no action, including detention and deportation, be used as a means of retaliation with regard to the activists who are advocating on behalf of the undocumented, on behalf of dreamers, on behalf of migration and those who are immigrants or refugees in this country. And so this is deeply disturbing. It is, in fact, happening. News outlets have done the reporting to show at least about two dozen folks who have been detained or deported as a result, or at least if not a direct causal result, then a correlative result of people who have spoken out. They've been quoted in newspapers, they've appeared on television programs, they've marched in protests, they've exercised their First Amendment right of free speech and have been retaliated against as a result of that by the Trump administration. I find this incredibly disturbing. I'm not sure, you know, how do we move forward in this? I mean, maybe I feel like there's, following our last segment, there's a little bit of an analogy here in terms of those who do have permanent documented status or are citizens of this country who can't be deported, but who may nevertheless face detention or arrest under civil disobedience, how do we exercise the privilege that we have by virtue of our immigration status in this country? One of the ways that we can do it is by rethinking the rhetoric that we sometimes encounter around this. And so the the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, and other groups say that they have documented two dozen cases of immigrant activists and volunteers who say they've been arrested or face fines because of their work. And you mentioned before using their First Amendment rights to speak up. Some of the rhetoric that you encounter sometimes, particularly in all white spaces, is that the First Amendment only applies to citizens or that the First Amendment only applies to those who have the proper documentation. If we look at the founding documents of the United States of America, that's not the way that the founders thought about this. So if if you're an original intent person, like my friends at the Acton Institute or Antonin Scalia, God rest his soul, or whoever, you have to pay attention to the fact that when the founders said that they believed that all men, all persons, are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights— What they were saying was it doesn't matter if you have the proper papers. It matters that you are simply created in the image of God and that these rights cohere to you because of that. So when we are talking about persons who are here in this country, regardless of whether or not they have their papers in order, every citizen should be concerned if they are being harassed, particularly if you have a worry, and I'm scare-quoting worry here, about the government overstepping its authority and its reach, because the overstep of authority and reach doesn't begin with people who are properly documented. It begins with people who are undocumented. And you mentioned Russia and others. It's the vulnerable populations that are the canary in the coal mine for your rights, white man. <laughs> yeah, well, and and I think from, from the Catholic perspective, though you're right, I think pragmatically, our position is, is one actually where we shouldn't be doing this just because it might happen to us. Fair enough. I'm trying to speak to that I one know, or two no, listeners who may have stumbled upon the podcast accidentally and are listening <laughs> simply because they— You've they... made it this far, folks. Thank you. <laughs> um, or you just randomly fast-forwarded here. But, but the point is, it's well put. No, I understand who you're speaking to. I just want to kind of double down on that and say that there's an intrinsic reason that, that we need to be concerned. I'll also say that where that kind of rhetoric gets thrown around tends to be by groups and politicians and individuals who— also pride themselves, particularly during the aughts and the the presidency of George W. Bush, pride themselves as advocates of the United States as, to quote Ronald Reagan, that great shining city on the hill where we go around and import or force democracy upon other people in a kind of patronizing way. And we've seen how well that's worked. But the idea that we want to be advocates for these kinds of rights that we enjoy here and that everybody should have, well, 
you can't talk out, you know, you are talking out of both sides of your mouth and you can't have it both ways in this regard, you know, to not just people who happen to physically be within the geographic bounds of the United States, but these are rights that we have for a long time advocated around the world so that, for instance, one of the reasons Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was so despised by Vladimir Putin is for some speeches that she had given in Eastern Europe that he took as deliberately subversive in his own home court. But the argument was that people have the right to assemble and to protest, including to protest their government leadership, and that to squelch that, which was something that Putin's regime and administration did, as as others have done in an effort to kind of maintain control, is something that we as citizens of the United States do not stand for. So there is both the religious side of things in terms of the inherent dignity and value of each and every human person, but there's also the kind of civic pride and the democratic principles upon which this government is actually founded. The United States was not founded on Christian values, but it was founded on certain democratic Western European uh, ideological values. Whether you're a person of faith or not, if you're a person of goodwill who believes in the U.S. experiment, (laughs) which has been going on for 200 plus years, then you should be concerned too. Well, let me just continue this line of thought. So I started out talking about the rhetoric and I was speaking to the hypothetical two listeners. But let me also just say to our, our listeners who actually share a kind of progressive desire for this to be addressed in our civic space, there is rhetoric that you will encounter. There are rhetorics that you will encounter that can be challenged. For example, the notion that undocumented persons are, are illegal and they should just get in line and do the right thing, just like my XYZ person, friend, family member did. Okay, so I want to unpack that rhetoric right quick. I did an hour-long documentary on this for PBS, and I talked to immigration lawyers, and I talked to people at World Relief, and I talked to, I talked to people that are on the front lines of this advocating for immigrants, and what they told me again and again is that there is no line right now, that if you are a person who was brought here as a child illegally – for however you came here and you were undocumented, there is no way to simply get into a line and suddenly do the right thing. And again, I'm I'm sort of scare quoting, do the right thing. Instead, you are trapped. Your way of life is here and you have no way to hit the reset button. And that's an important thing to realize that civically, we haven't given these people a way out. All that we have given them is an entrapment that is either they have to go back to a a situation that may be dangerous or fatal for them, or they have to try and hide in the shadows here. As Catholics, that's not something that we should be supporting. And we shouldn't be supporting the lie that is there in the rhetoric that somehow there's an easy fix to this. Instead, we need to be speaking to two levels. We need to be speaking on the individual level to the cases that we encounter, people who are being harassed or who feel threatened. We need to speak up on their behalf just as a, as a matter of human flourishing. But we also need to speak systemically. We need to call our senators. We need to call our lawmakers. And we need to say, this is a problem that has to be fixed. It's, a, it's been broken now for two generations. And even if you have a friend or a family member who did it, quote unquote, the right way, that avenue has closed it's not available in the way that it was 12 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago. So the stories that you hear that are anecdotal don't actually speak to the current situation. Well, a couple of things, too. I mean, in the spirit of intersectionality, I mean, the other thing, too, is a lot of folks who are most critical tend to be people who come from, you know, nations in which the population is generally white. And so you have, like, I can claim, and rightly so, that I come from a family of Irish immigrants. But even today, if somebody immigrated from Ireland, 
uh, it was interesting. I saw this this remark on social media recently that why do we call Western European immigrants expats and brown immigrants we call immigrants? Yeah. You know? um, so, I mean, even the language we use around this uh, that, that the media uses is, is worth noting and paying attention to um, the disparity and the discrimination that's there. But I just want to make a, a recommendation, too, as a, for a resource, and that is the great work of a theologian who's at Boston College, Professor Kristen Heyer, who happened to just give a lecture last night here in Chicago, and she has a book with Georgetown University Press called Kinship Across Borders and has written a lot about migration and immigration and Catholic social teaching. So I, I commend that to our listeners. She quoted a bishop last evening in the Q&A, and, and I, I'm sorry, I, I can't remember the name of the bishop, but what Professor Heyer said, quoting this bishop, was that when it comes to our undocumented sisters and brothers, to call them illegal is sinful language. They are not, he says, breaking the law. The law is breaking them, which, I, you know, it, it has the makings of a great protest poster, but it also has a self-contained truth. Just because the law is such under the current administration and the way it's being enforced, just because the law is on the books doesn't make it just. You know, there's a certain irony here that a lot of the same people who are so concerned about the legalization of of abortion in the United States and decry the injustice of that law have no problem with the injustice of some of the immigration and civil rights laws or lack thereof for our sisters and brothers. So it's something worth thinking about. And I think there are a lot of resources in in the Catholic tradition. I think Professor Heyer's stuff, uh, Professor David Hollenbach at um, at Georgetown University has also written a lot on this. One of the things that put this issue on my radar was the fact that I know some of the people that are being targeted. And so I have an acquaintance, for example, with a gentleman by the name of Ravi Ragbir, who is from New York City, the New Sanctuary Coalition of New York City. I don't know him well, but I did meet him at a conference where we were both at that was hosted by Sojourners. And I had a chance to talk to him about his work and what animates his work. And, you know, when I when I saw on my social media feeds that he had been targeted and arrested, suddenly it became not just a hypothetical issue, but it's like, oh my goodness, they're arresting people that I know. And that galvanized me in a particular way. Now, again, I don't know Ravi well, but I, but it, it made it a, a personal thing because I had that connection with him. I had, I had sat down over a cup of coffee with him. I had had a chance to talk to him about what animates his work. But that makes me realize that every single person that we're talking about in these 20 or 24 that are talked about in these various complaints by the ACLU, every one of those people has those same kind of connections. They exist in networks and they exist with friendships and they exist with family. They are part of our life here. They are people who interact with us and who contribute to our common good. And so to think of them as kind of interchangeable parts that can just be removed by the state and dropped somewhere else without creating not only impact on their own lives, but impact on their social networks and their social situations. Well, and their family lives. I mean, I think sometimes you're being 100% accurate, but the language we use, you know, social networks and stuff, that's true. But let's just be blunt here. People who claim to be for family values. People who claim to vote for politicians because of the rhetoric they use or the images they project about the family and, and so forth. Well, this is the advocating the active destruction of family life. It's the tearing apart of people. Oftentimes you have parents who might be undocumented, but children who are born in this country that are U.S. citizens. And what are you going to do when you have these kids or these teenagers? You're going to tear their parents out. How can you call yourself pro-life? How can you call yourself pro-family if you support those policies? You simply aren't. Well, and just to take one story, so looking at this on January 3rd, 
ICE Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents arrested Jean Motrevel. He's part of the New Sanctuary Coalition. He was the co-founder of New York's New Sanctuary Coalition. He was ordered deported. He checked in with ICE regularly for the past 15 years. So he's been on their radar. He's been doing what they asked him to do in order to stay in the country. And he married a U.S. citizen. He had four children. And this speaks to the family pieces. And he started a business. But he was deported to Haiti on January 16th. So, you know, we have examples of people who were told you have to do these things to stay. And they've done those things. And now suddenly the switch has flipped on them. And because they did those things, because they were visible, because they made themselves known and they checked in, they were very easy to target and to find when the state decided that it was going to change its policy. And that's the other thing is is that it's kind of a bait and switch. If you want these people to be accounted and accountable and accounted for, if you don't want them to be in the shadows, if you don't want them to act like, quote unquote, illegals, you need to create a situation where they can trust the system. And right now they can't. And this goes the same for the dreamers and for those that have done what the state has asked in terms of becoming more visible in exchange for certain guarantees and protections. Now those guarantees and protections are being removed and the visibility is being used against them. This is a recipe for disaster. That's cruel, too. It's, it's a violation as far as I'm concerned to the U.S. Constitution because it's cruel and unusual mm. to lure especially the DACA, the DREAMers, the DACA recipients, into providing all these kinds of personal information and resources and identification and and registering, essentially, with all that information ready to hand, and then to use that against them in such a cruel way. It's, it's inhumane. It's unjust. The United Nations is correct to condemn the United States. I think we, as people of faith, as Catholic Christians in particular, should join them. And I should say, by the way, the bishop's have been doing this, though it doesn't get the headlines, though a lot of the conservative, self-identified conservative Catholic social media folks aren't talking about this because they're usually concerned about one or two other issues. The U.S. bishops have, and I encourage you to go to the usccb.org website to look at the many, many statements that the, the U.S. bishops have put out on immigration. This is an important issue for the church, for the American church in particular. And so I'm sure that, unfortunately, we'll have more to say about this. But for right now, I just want to thank you again, Dan, for being with me today. David, always a pleasure. Likewise. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center dot O-R-G. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. 
You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes that you can check out from our first season and a growing number from this season. Thank you for listening. <laughs>